ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This podcast is produced on the lands of the Bunurong, Bunwarung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation, as well as the Wurundjeri, Gadigal and Waramai people and people of the Kanamaluka. Just letting you know that this episode contains strong language. The roads in and out of Queenstown this morning were frozen over and they have been for the whole of this anxious week. The weather only highlights the isolation of Tasmania's west coast. It's always been a case of us versus the rest of them. And no wonder, decisions affecting the lives of the people in Queenstown are always made far away, in remote multinational boardrooms, and in this case, in a distant courtroom. It was a cold, tazzy winter in 1983. Everyone knew the High Court verdict on the future of the Franklin River was coming soon. It all hinged on the High Court. And if we lost the High Court, what then? It was very disempowering and it was very alienating. And to think that the rivers depended on this outcome. None of us felt confident. We just felt a a sick sense of anxiety, of dread. It had been years since Jeff Law started his Franklin campaigning with that harebrained scheme to make a giant platypus puppet. He'd spent months in the west coast town of Strawn as blockaders put their bodies in front of bulldozers. But even after that, it all came down to this one decision. And all he could do was wait. I went away bushwalking um, because there was nothing I could do about that announcement and I headed for the central highlands of Tasmania out on my own in these rugged glaciated landscapes under a blanket of deep soft snow. I got a lift out from the area with the Hydroelectric Commission and the driver said, oh, we find out about the dam tomorrow. And he said, don't know what'll happen to Tasmania if that dam doesn't go ahead. And he said, don't know what'll happen to Tasmania if it does go ahead. I'm Joe Lauder, and this is Saving the Franklin. Today, the last set of this epic tennis match, the final decision that determines the fate of the Franklin. And could a win like this ever happen again? This is episode six. In that winter of 1983, the movement's leader, Bob Brown, flew to Brisbane, where the High Court decision on the Franklin Dam was to be handed down. On the 1st of July, Bob and the campaigners that were with him filed into the court's gallery. As they waited for the judges to arrive, their nerves and their boredom grew. Bob decided to flip a coin on the outcome. Heads, they'd win. Tails, they would lose. It was tails. So they decided to make it out of three as you do. The next two, both heads. Just what they wanted. Finally, the judges came in. About 500 people crowded into the court to hear the decision. The court was packed. We're all there in a little group. And each judge started reading out their judgment. There was a rumour that three judges would back the Tasmanian government, therefore the dam. Three were against, and one who could go either way. And finally, we got to the point where it was evident. The High Court in Brisbane has ruled that the Gordon Below Franklin Dam cannot be built. And at that point, a man 
got up dressed in saffron robes and announced, we've won. <laughs> and it was he was ushered rapidly out of the court. But we were just uh, amazed with pleasure. That was it. Four to three in favour of the Franklin. After seven long years campaigning, the Franklin was saved. We walked out into a 26 degrees midwinter day in Brisbane and the huge array of press. Tremendous after so many years of struggle for so many millions of people, because millions of Australians have been involved in this campaign, to know that the Franklin and Gordon Rivers will run free to the sea forever for all future generations to enjoy. And just congratulations to Australia, to everybody, including uh, so many people in Tasmania. What did you do next? We caught the Qantas plane home. We were given champagne by the attendants on the plane. Everybody was happy. We landed in Sydney and went to change planes and here were more than 100 people with Save the Franklin. And a woman came out of this crowd and said, at 11 o'clock this morning I was doing my ironing and the people in the unit next door started screaming and instead of the calling the police, I started screaming too <laughs> because they'd just heard that the Franklin had been saved and I wanted to come and tell you. It must have been such a moment. It was. It was just such a, a combination of pleasure and a recognition that so many people had put so much into it. Back in Tassie, Jeff Law was still waiting to hear the news as he made his way back from the hike. I was hitchhiking back to Hobart and um, I got a lift with one driver and he asked me what I did for a, a, a living and I said, well, well I, I'm a volunteer for the Wilderness Society. And he said, oh, well, you must be happy about... And then I just can't remember what he said after that because I just felt this sense of uh, overwhelming relief and my whole body went weak and I stopped hearing what he was saying because I knew that the court had gone the right way. What do you remember about when you got to Hobart that night at the Wilderness Society? By the time I arrived in Hobart, people had known the news for about two hours and so, you know, there'd already been quite a bit of celebration. Later that evening, some designated drivers took us out to the airport in order to meet Bob Brown and we just, you know, greeted them with cheers and hugs and, and laughter. This was everything the environmentalists had worked for. The bulldozers would finally, legally, be forced to stop. There was nothing left for the campaigners to do. They'd won. For Tasmania's West Coast, though, the scene couldn't have been more different. They don't cry easily on Tasmania's West Coast. We've only just got married and we thought that we'd have a good life here, but now that they've stopped the dam, we've got nothing. This is the bitter, human side of that decision. Scott Payne and his wife Linda, they've just bought a house. The hydro workers had been charging ahead with works right up until the decision came down. The radio was in an overhead console and um, that's where I heard the decision. 
have a news flash from the ABC. The High Court in Brisbane has ruled that the Gordon Below Franklin Dam cannot be built. Kevin Bailey, one of the young hydro contractors, was in one of his earth-moving machines when he heard the news. And then I shut the machine down and composed myself and, and thought, what are we going to do now? And those words were echoed in Queenstown back in the days when the mine first retrenched. What are we going to do now? Kevin had a young family to support, like a lot of his workers, and he felt like his future had just evaporated before his eyes. got home that night and we had a meeting with our drivers and we said, we don't know what's going to happen, but you all know the decision and that could mean that we, we don't have any jobs for you. There wasn't a lot of words said. When you make a financial commitment, there's no room for not making payments. And I was wondering how ends would meet. Kevin was worried about letting his mates and workers go, but also feared whether anything could replace the years of work that the dam promised. The High Court decision put about 2,000 hydro workers out of a job. People were pissed. Who do you blame for the decision, for what's happened? Bob Brown and the Wilderness Society. My job is now on the line and my husband's is on the line. We want to work. We are not bludgers. We don't want to line up at the doll office and get the doll. I'm sorry for my children and their children have got to suffer by this decision. God, we've already had a referendum and two elections on the thing. And what, what do we do? What's... Well, I think there'll be murder in the town tonight. In the days after the decision, a small group of angry workers set fire to a giant hewn pine, one that had been standing tall for more than 2,500 years. They hacked into it and scrawled a message, fuck you green cunts. Conservation movement never came and did anything. Bob Brown never turned up with his foundation and said, oh, here's some money for you because you're struggling. Born and bred West Coaster, Brian Gardner was now working for the Hydro. He'd watched as Queenstown became a national media circus. And then, as everyone went home, they were left to pick up the pieces. They walked out. No one came back and said, oh, you know, that didn't eventuate. We need to do something to help you out. They walked away and left us. We weren't interested at all. Brian's seen how the battle over the Franklin left deep scars in the community. As one West Coaster put it, they didn't save the Franklin, they destroyed a town. It was very obvious for quite a long time. Ten years, it was still raw. Probably 15 years, you could still get a good argument. because You could start a fiery argument up. It was that long, that trusting people, of people, and, uh, and that was a core value for the West Coast, is now diminished. It sort of it escalated and it split families. There's no doubt about that. It split families. Families that were split were split for a long time, you know, and that was sad. Well, I'm bitterly disappointed, and I'm bitterly disappointed for all Tasmanians. Within days, Robin Gray's government was creating new projects, like roadworks on the West Coast, which gave workers like Kevin Bailey a way to make ends meet. Tasmanians have fought for this dam. It was very important to us. The federal government also gave Tasmania $277 million. The West Coast only got a chunk of that. And Robin Gray's government did start building another power scheme on the West Coast the following year. The major difference, though, was this scheme was built outside the World Heritage Area. 
Bob Brown and the Wilderness Society opposed this scheme as well. And when I asked Bob about it recently, why there wasn't another huge campaign like the Franklin blockade, he said the reality was that it came too soon after the Franklin and everyone was burnt out. That power scheme became a source of jobs for workers and construction carried on for eight years. Still, West Coaster Brian Gardner, who grew up depending on the environment for industry, thinks the Franklin Dam would have been the best option for the region. On the other hand, ex-hydro contractor Kevin Bailey now thinks the conservation movement got it right. I was wrong. It doesn't cost you anything to admit your mistakes. Like I said before, the things i done and the things I said and the way I acted, often to me, I've, I think, how could I have done that or been part of that? But I know that 40 years later, I've definitely changed. Tasmania shifted in recent decades from building new dams to other renewables. Hydro Tasmania, which was once the HEC, is investing in pumped hydro on the dams that they already have, as well as wind and solar. And it has less political power than it did back then. And the kind of cool thing is that the state's already reached 100% renewable power and it's going for 200% by 2040. That's mostly because of hydropower, dams just like the Franklin that flooded these precious places. And this is really the paradox that lies at the heart of the whole Franklin story. The Franklin Dam was a renewable project, environmentally friendly in a different way. But at the time, in the early 80s, renewable energy wasn't on the agenda like it is today because climate change and the impact of carbon emissions wasn't mainstream science. Environmentalists have been wrestling with that tension between renewables and conservation. Even today, Bob Brown is trying to find the balance with supporting new renewable projects. I cut my teeth with so many others on opposing the Franklin Dam. That was a renewable energy source. We have alternatives for renewable energy. We don't have alternatives for extinct species. If you're going to go with a energy production system uh, for climate change, for which there are, are alternatives, and knock off species for which there are not alternatives, we need to do that with our eyes wide open. There are always trade-offs, even with green energy. And while it's key to addressing climate change, It doesn't mean that every renewables project is a good idea. We need to pick the projects with the least trade-offs. There's one other paradox at the heart of this story that I've been grappling with. You might have noticed how often the term wilderness is used in the environment movement. This living wilderness. wilderness This term was deliberately used as part of the Franklin campaign as a way to harness its symbolic power. Wilderness to me implies that it's a place that's pristine and there's no human footprint there. Aboriginal elder and researcher Ani Patsy Cameron wants people to stop using the word wilderness. I just take that term wilderness as being so disrespectful. Our people have lived in this place for thousands and thousands of years and that their footprints, their memory, their essence is still part of it. In fact, it was the proof of Aboriginal inhabitation in Kutakana Cave that helped it get the listing as the Southwest Wilderness World Heritage Area. It's ironic, right? 
Honestly, before making this series, I hadn't thought a lot about this term. I thought of the word wilderness as a way to describe places that weren't affected by modern development, places like national parks or the remote bush. But speaking to Ani Patsy has changed the way I think about it. Language is really important. Terminology can empower you or you can be disempowered. And, and I'm not prepared to be disempowered anymore. Have you had conversations with conservation groups or conservationists about their use of language around wilderness? I do. I constantly have those conversations. I call it putting out spot fires, you know. And I've had this discussion with people like Bob Brown and others. And it's really important that that we do have those conversations because otherwise nothing's going to change. The status quo will continue. But, you know, I'm not silent. I don't think many Aboriginal women are silent. In, and we do have the capacity now and we can articulate our issues through dialogue. I like that word because dialogue means, you know, you can listen to the, the other side as well and if you are strong enough to put your point of view across with strength and commitment, then hopefully it'll change. Pullower man Michael Mansell told my producer Pia Wursu that he's noticed better collaboration between environmentalists and First Nations people since the Franklin campaign. The outcome of the Tasmanian Dam's case and the discussion that took place in it about Aboriginal caves shifted a lot of people. I think also the exposure to some segments of the environmental movement established long-standing good relations with a whole range of environmentalists. By the time we finished down there with them, we could sit around and see that we had a lot in common with them. They were a lot more respectful. Did you talk to people from the environmental movement about how you were feeling? I remember the first time I met Bob Brown I think it was down to the University of Tasmania and I was walking up through the university when I bumped into him. And, of course, uh, I can't remember what I said, but I was angry, you know, with the environmental movement and was taking it out on Bob. And I was struck by his calmness, didn't try to defend it, waited until I'd finished, then explained it. And I can't remember how he did it, but he did explain Michael, that's not my view. I think they're wrong. We want to work with Aboriginal people. We acknowledge it's your land. What? You do? Yeah. And I thought, well, he's a bit of a man after my own heart and I've been friends with him ever since. Is that all good, Pia? Ready to go whenever you are. And can I just get you, please, to introduce yourself for the tape? I'm Christine Milne. I was a school teacher in northwest Tasmania in the early 1980s and went to the Franklin blockade. As a result of that, I ended up being empowered and entered Tasmanian politics and then federal politics and was the leader of the Tasmanian Greens and the Australian Greens at one point. Christine Milne was a major player in the Greens between 1989 and 2015. I met her in Tasmania, where she lives. She joined Bob Brown in Tasmanian politics in the years after the blockade, and they both went on to federal politics in the 90s. 
Since then, the Greens have pushed the environment and climate agenda in Australian politics. And today, they have 15 representatives in federal parliament. Do you think if the Franklin happened today that you'd see the same mobilisation and campaign around it and the same result? No. And that's mainly because of the anti-protest laws. When I was arrested and went to jail, it was for a misdemeanour. I did not end up with a criminal record. Do you think they would have got the same result without the blockade? It wouldn't have happened without that activism. The politics would never have happened without people putting their bodies on the line. And that's why we have to ensure people always can put their bodies on the line. A young person who would like to be involved in direct action now risks a hell of a lot more than those of us 40 years ago, and that's why these anti-protest laws have to go. In the last six months, three people have been sentenced to prison for the climate emergency, three non-violent protesters. How many times have you been arrested? 27 times in resistance, but... But I've done many more protests than that. Many, many more, yeah. All in the name of activism. This is Violet Coco. She's 32 years old and she's a frontline climate activist. While we were making this series, Violet Coco organised a protest on the Sydney Harbour Bridge where she blocked a single lane of traffic as a call to action on climate change. In early December, she was sentenced to 15 months jail under strict new laws rushed through the New South Wales Parliament with bipartisan support in April to prohibit the blocking of major roads and bridges. No, it's not excessive. And if protesters want to put our way of life at risk, they should have the book thrown at them. Um, And that's pleasing to see. There was a truck and a firefighter and myself climbed on top of that truck and two other people, an opera singer and a philosopher, glued their hands on in front of the truck. And then um, the firefighter and I let off emergency smoke beacons and uh, we were there for 25 minutes before uh, the police took us down with ladders. It all happens very quickly. You know, it's scary, but it's also empowering. We had many people driving past. Some were saying shoot them. (laughs) And some were saying, thank you so much for everything that you're doing. And that's, you know, polarising, I suppose. But ultimately, I think that we get a lot more people who are grateful for our courage. What were you charged with? And can you tell me um, a bit about your sentence as well? So I was charged with two laws that were about blocking the road. I was charged with unauthorised use of an explosive device. Oh, they charged me with (laughs) encouraging the commission of crimes because on the live stream I asked people to join protests. Yeah, apparently it's illegal to tell people to protest now. They sentenced me with 15 months in prison. 15 months for a climate protest, with eight of them being non-parole so in jail. She pleaded guilty to seven charges, including one for letting off a flare and another for resisting a police officer during arrest. I'm not really surprised, though, because in response to environmental protests across the country, a bunch of laws have been passed that crack down on protesters. 
Like in New South Wales, they could end up in jail for two years and get a fine of $22,000 for a protest that blocks a major road. That's the laws that Violet was charged under. And Victoria's just brought in protest laws for forest protesters. But with the Franklin, they were charged with trespass and it's considered a misdemeanour. And when they went to jail, it was by design because they refused their bail conditions. Do you think these new laws and sentences like the one that you got put people off getting involved in direct action? There's a dual dual effect, which is one, yes, there are some people who are going to be like, oh, that's too scary and I'm, I'm just going to not engage. But I think that there are more people who will say, oh, my gosh, our right to protest is under threat. Now is the time to step up and who actually see this threat to our democracy as a call to action. What would you say is the purpose of those kind of actions that are, like you said, um, very, very disruptive and very, very visible? It's all about raising awareness. It's about embodying my truth and the truth of the science, which is that there's something profoundly wrong with our current trajectory, our current society, and, um, and that we need to shift gears into an emergency speed transition to zero emissions. When I chatted to Violet, she was out on bail pending an appeal, but since then her sentence has been overturned. I think attitudes towards environmental protesters have changed heaps since the 80s. Yes, there were parts of Tasmania that didn't support the blockade, but overall they were really respected and people really admired what they were doing. But in the years since then, there's this idea that environmental protesters are like do-gooders or inner-city lefties or greenies. And I think that's been deliberate as well. It's like conservative media and politicians have been working to undermine the cause by portraying them that way. It's only really been since the school strikes for climate that we've started to see that perception change again. History is actually the real judge and people look back at the suffragettes, the civil rights movement, the Gandhian movement, even the Franklin and go, wow, what heroes, they're so amazing. Do you think with the Franklin it was easier to galvanise people and motivate them and get them involved in the protest because there was one front line. It was a very clear cause, whereas with climate change, I mean, there are so many front lines, there are so many factors to it. It is so nebulous that people people kind of don't know how best to engage and then I think some people just get overwhelmed and switch off. Totally, 100%. Yeah, so, so that's why we've sort of pivoted to these single-issue demands like stop fossil fuel subsidies. And so you get people outraged about this small issue where it's easy to, to potentially sell to people, OK, well, we just have to protect this bit of forest. And then once you've got them mobilised and got the community engaged, then you can sort of use that as a platform to talk about the wider emergency. All right, just heading out to meet Bob. The day before I interviewed Bob Brown for this series was one of those hectic work days and we were doing interviews back to back. When I had a spare moment, I opened my phone, I opened Instagram and there was this footage of Bob getting arrested in a forest in northeast Tasmania. Part of me was worried if he'd make our interview the next day. But also I was struck by the fact that even in his late 70s, 
Bob's still out there on the front line, as defiant as ever. I've just come down from the northeast forest where uh, we got arrested yesterday in this global extinction crisis for trying to defend creatures going to extinction. I'm coming up 77 and uh, very much uh, invigorated by the bright-eyed young women and men that I see getting involved, like some who are up in the forest with me yesterday. When I started reporting on this story, I was looking back to see what the lessons are for today. How the Franklin campaign has managed to make Australia give a shit about the future of a remote river that they probably never visit, but they still felt, on principle, should run free. The most common question I get from youngsters, students and young people generally is, Bob Brown, why aren't you depressed? And I say back to them, uh, because I was. I spent you know, years being depressed as a young fellow looking at the way the world is and I found that it's, it's no place to be. It is so much better to be active. And the Franklin campaign is also a heartland lesson in the fact that even in the bleakest circumstances, you have a right to change things for the better. And had we allowed pessimism to overcome our optimism, and had we seen the death of the Franklin as inevitable rather than something to be fought against, it would have gone. I think we're in a new age of environmental activism, which is going to challenge very mightily this mindset that we should just go forth and have dominion over the planet and and wreck it as if it is replaceable. It's not, but we're coming to save it. The Franklin campaign was also so successful because they never put all their eggs in one basket. They courted politicians, held colourful street protests. They went to local branch meetings of political parties, planned river blockades and took legal action all in the same week. Because they did all of that, there were so many ways to get involved. Lawyers, teachers, pensioners, psych nurses, everyone could find a role that suited them. It's the same for climate action. You don't have to be a frontline protester like Violet, but she thinks you need to be doing something. Ultimately, I always land in in this space where I'm like, well, what do I want my life to be about? And I want my life to be about doing what's right and doing everything that I can. And I, and, and honestly, I do think there is hope. Um, if there wasn't hope, you know, maybe I wouldn't be doing it at all. But I, I just know how ingenious humans are. And if we have this, this rush of people who really understand the urgency of the issue, what we could do to protect this planet is just, you know, you, we couldn't even imagine the scale. Through all my reporting on this, I've learned that bringing about huge social and political change is hard, but it's not impossible. So in a fight for the environment, what does it take to win? It takes a lot of people and a lot of optimism. There isn't a secret recipe or algorithm, but there's got to be the belief that things can change. And that is what the Franklin campaign has had. This series is reported and hosted by me, Joe Lauder. 
Pia Wersu is our producer and reporter. Bethany Atkinson-Quinton is our supervising producer. Tynan King is our researcher. Our executive producer is Claire Rawlinson. Engineering by John Jacobs and our original theme music by Casey Holford. Special thanks to Tim Roxburgh, Ruby Schwartz and Justine Kelly. Thanks also to Audio Studios Manager Monique Bowley, Radio National Manager Kath Dwyer, Production Manager Bridget Berger and Editorial Policy Advisors Jane Connors and Bridget Caldwell-Bright. I'm going to be back in a couple of weeks with some bonus episodes as well that you're going to want to hear. There was so much that we couldn't fit into the show. So keep an eye out wherever you're listening. And also, if you subscribe to the show on the ABC Listen app, you'll get some exclusive bonus interviews there as well. I think you're going to love my new podcast. It's called The King of Kowloon, and it's the story of a Hong Kong graffiti vandal and of the city itself. He's the king, he's the king. Yes, he's the king. He was completely mad, completely bonkers. He was incoherent. He was certifiable. There's a piece of memories within all of us. For my generation, we all have a piece of him in our mind. He wrote of dispossession when no one else did. He became a celebrity artist, a fashion inspiration, a muse, and then a most unusual icon. When the city exploded in protest, its people did what their king had done, covering the city's walls again with protest calligraphy. The city was in a fight for its life. You can hear it by searching for The King of Kowloon on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.